Welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex Fontanson, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. And this week we've got a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club. We've got Justin Bengry. Justin is lecturer in queer history at Goldsmiths University of London, and he convenes the first MA in queer history and directs the Centre for Queer History. Welcome, Justin. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to apply to the club. I hope you'll let me in. Oh, it's very rigorous, <laughs> Justin. You've got a long <laughs> process to get through. <laughs> Think of the hardest interview you've ever experienced. <laughs> I've come with nominations and reference letters, so. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Well, you know, can I just yeah. throw a curveball in to start, actually, Justin, just to make you really uncomfortable? Because rather than just start about film, I just, I am just amazed that we've only just established an MA in queer history very recently. And I, you know, it's only when you mentioned this as the first one, I realised that it is, of course, the first MA course of this kind. Why do you think now and why has it taken so long for us to, to set that up? Well, I think there's a few things in play. Uh, there have been, of course, uh, uh, programmes that look at uh, lesbian and gay history, that look at histories of gender and sexuality. Certainly we have, we're indebted to many programmes around the country and internationally that have really um, set the um, uh, set the stage for us to be able to to do this. I think what's more astonishing is that going now into the fifth year of the program, as far as I know, we're still the only one. And I think there should be dozens and dozens of them everywhere. May they proliferate like the rabbits in the favourite, which we may discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Justin, so like when we're talking about queer history on film, um, you know, an aspect of this that's quite tricky is that obviously for quite a long period of time it was quite difficult to make films that were open about queer history. So, you know, if you look certainly in Hollywood, you know, before the Hayes Code, you actually could make some quite, you know, experimental films. I was thinking of Queen Christina in which Greta Garbo, uh, dressed up as a man, gives a woman a full-on snog. Um, but of course, then that all, after the Hayes Code was brought in in the 1930s, that became impossible really to make films that were so open or at least until Some Like It Hot basically broke the Hayes Code with its immensely queer interpretation of the 1920s mm-hmm. um, in 1959. So we've, we've sort of got a big gap and even after that it became quite difficult. Why do you think you know only now we're perhaps beginning to see some films that really you know start to explore queer history as part of history? Well I'd say some of this comes down to what we define as a queer film and what constitutes uh, uh, queer themes within a film, because as much as there's really great early examples, like you cited, of of, of films that expressly took on queer themes, and I would note um, even earlier from 1919, Anders Osti-Andern, the Richard Oswald film from Germany, from Weimar, Germany, um, that itself came in this just this tiny moment, even in German history, when when a film could explicitly discuss um, queer themes, um, but. Throughout the rest of the period, the, there there's still films that speak to queer people in the past and in the present, um, and I think all kinds of examples of films where where characters and incidents and experiences were coded as queer in various ways, where um, queer production staff, directors, writers um, managed to get ideas, understandings, characters, references, codes into films in really exciting ways that. Um, the historians have been talking about for decades, of course, but it means that I teach a module called Queer History Through Film at, at Goldsmiths, and in 10 weeks, it's hard to pick 
10 films because there's just so many. And I've, I've made the restriction to just British films um, or, or ones that I can make a strong connection to, um, to British productions. But there's just so much out there. And it's fantastic that more recently, of course, post, uh, I suppose, post-gay liberation movements, post-Stonewall, post-greater um, um, uh, expansion of, 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 of legal rights, of uh, uh, community building, of, of commercialization, all of that has opened up much greater discussion of LGBTQ people, experiences, and identities more broadly. But we see that particularly for our conversation in film. So in your selection of the, the 10 that you've had to create for your shortlist for your course, what's, what's the first one you make the students watch? Um, actually, the first one is Anders Asti Andan. Um, <laughs> because it is, I, I don't think they expect to see that in, in 1919. And the students are often quite surprised to see how familiar some of the statements are, how progressive the positions are on decriminalization in, in Germany of what was then paragraph 175 that forbade um, same-sex acts between men. Um, they're really surprised to see that. We were very fortunate, actually, a couple years ago, of course, it was the 100th anniversary of the film, and we um, uh, commissioned a, uh, a local band to offer a new score of the film that was performed live at Goldsmith. So that was absolutely a great treat, and Grok, the band from East London, was absolutely fantastic. I hope in a post-COVID world to... Uh, uh, to, to, to offer that event again. Oh, wow, that sounds amazing. Can we open that to the general public? Might do a history film club. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah let's do it. We've amazing. always got an eye on a party, I have to say. <laughs> Most of our podcasts are about how to create a party opportunity. So. Works for me. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I mean, I think, you know, it's really interesting that that's a 100-year celebration, you know, 100-year anniversary, because it reminds us about trying to keep a kind of broader gaze when we're thinking about film and how stories are told on film we tend to often reach for the most recent examples of things but you know we've got a hundred years now of kind of significant filmmaking history and um and also non-british as well we need to try and um look abroad too so i think it's a really useful um starting point um for your students yeah i mean i similarly like have taught some like it hot before and it's fascinating watching kind of students now watch it and be absolutely astonished by how progressive it is you know they're sort of often expecting it to be somewhat transphobic perhaps a bit dated and it really isn't it's actually you know really quite um it's quite it's extremely modern in its treatment it, it does not rely on making unpleasant jokes about men in dresses actually it really honors those characters and um and I mean, partly I think, you know, and that, of course, the film is is a historical movie. It was made in 1959. It's set in uh, in the 1920s. Um, and it's, but of course, made by Billy Wilder, who, of course, was coming out of that same Weimar Germany environment that you're talking about. You know, he was somebody who actually absolutely had grown up in a more liberal world, which then was shut down and disappeared. And I think your your point, too, about these, these films being um, more progressive, more open, and offering very, um, uh, what feel in many ways like contemporary discussions, they, they kind of thwart our expectation that they're going to be phobic. I see over and over in, uh, in the films that I, I screen for the module as well, and, and, and students see things that I don't see. I've learned so much about these films that I thought I knew by seeing them again through my students. So a, a really great one that um, 
I kind of thought was going to be a little bit of a risk the first time I showed it. I, I, when I first ran this module, I think I expected students to be really bored of the old films. And in fact, they get right into them. And one is the 1959 film, Serious Charge, um, directed by Terence Young. And this is one in which a, a vicar is accused um, by a youth of, of, of interference, to use the language of the 50s. We know, having seen the incident go down, that it's a, it's a false charge, that it's a threat against the vicar. No one actually says the word homosexuality, but everyone knows that the young man that's made an accusation against the priest is playing off of um, what were then in the 50s, a lot of uh, uh, scandal cases and um, uh, uh, exploitation in the scandal press, I should say, of, of these cases of, of um, offenses by, by men against um, youths and boys. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that film plays out. Unfortunately, we have the knowledge that the vicar is, is, uh, is innocent. But what I didn't see in that film until my, my students saw it is, okay, he's innocent, but the students are convinced that he's gay anyway, that the accusation is partially true, even if the crime isn't. And they started to discuss how, how his mother was talking to him and other interactions with other characters. And I, it just, it opened up the film to me that here we see arguably a gay vicar in 1959 being presented in a mainstream film. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, our listeners might also be quite interested to know that Serious Charge is also the cinematic debut of Cliff Richard in a minor oh. role. <laughs> oh, Alex, I love your factual knowledge. But I mean, this is something quite fascinating, isn't it, Justin, that even looking, I mean, and I understand that this is kind of on your module when, you know, when you're looking at queer history through film, it's not necessarily a case of picking films that are historical, but actually kind of looking back at those, his, recreating those historical attitudes through film. So as you say, like, if you're looking at something like Serious Charge, you are seeing how contemporary society at that time dealt with, for instance, homosexuality in that case. Um, so what, I mean, give us some other movies on your course. I think we're making a list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the classic, of course, is Victim from a few yeah. years oh, later. Yeah. I mean, we can't have this discussion without talking about Victim and Dirk Bogard um, in that film that was basically a, an advertisement for the Wolfenden recommendations to partially decriminalise homosexual acts between men in, in Britain. Um, and uh, those were uh, released in, in 57, the film was 61, and partial decriminalization came in England and Wales, at least, in 1967. Um, but that one is, um, I mean, that's an interesting film in other ways, because I think, uh, I think students and, and, and the rest of us go into that thinking, oh, well, this is going to be fighting the good fight. It's going to be... Um, um, uh, telling us how society can be improved and advocating for legal reform. These are all good. But I think students and others, we probably find ourselves a bit uncomfortable sometimes during the film because some of the relationships, I suppose it's presentation of women can be problematic or of um, um, gay men that aren't sort of suitably masculine and self-defining and assertive. The sort of, there's, there's others that don't quite match what uh, what what uh, is expected of of, uh, of 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 masculinity, and they're maybe not ridiculed exactly, but certainly seen as less than. I mean, it was criticized at the time by uh, by by homosexual activists that um, calling the film victim made these people passive. It didn't give them agency. Mm -hmm. um, they were needing help from someone else that could 
do do the work on behalf of them. And even Dirk Bogard in this, this really important role that was rightly praised at the time, he expresses desire for other men, but is uncontaminated by any intercourse, any, any sexual acts between men. So he still, his character remains free from the taint of homosexuality in many ways, even as he um, is clearly identified as a, a, a gay man in the, in the film advocating for change. So it's, a, it's, it's problematic in ways that you don't expect until you dig a bit deeper. It's interesting, isn't it, that the films that we're talking about often set in a contemporary context. Um, and even though we look at them as historians to, to learn something about the culture and the climate of the 1960s, the films themselves are trying to capture the modern moment, um, the time that they're made. Do you find tend to find that with the films that you're using with your course or queer history, that they are actually contemporary films rather than films that project back into the, the past? Yeah, for the most part, that's the case. I mean, looking at 20th century film, I think I think a big reason for that is that throughout the 20th century, LGBTQ topics were seen as part of a current social problem in inverted commas. And so whether that problem was criminalization in gay men or um, trans issues or, um, gosh, uh, uh, um, the age of consent, uh, debates around the age of consent, um, all, of, all of those are contemporary issues that then films are, are addressing, either because they have a... Uh, a social justice element. I want to bring attention to these these topics in a in a progressive way, but also they're marketable and saleable as being important in their current moment. So I think it's impossible to look at films only as cultural productions and not also as commercial productions. So I think these two things intertwined mean that LGBTQ topics are so often in the moment in in film. That's not always the case, of course, but I think for much of the 20th century and certainly the module I teach. Um, it really is. It's almost as though we find that longer history harder to engage with. I mean, just thinking about the controversies, you know, when the National Trust tried to uh, reinterpret their properties um, to find, you know, histories of, of gay residents and queer pasts. Um, and that caused quite a lot of um, controversy at the time and inevitably in the press about the culture wars. But um, I wonder if it's there's something that audiences find harder to project a, a longer history for queer history, that we see it as something uniquely modern? Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's a really interesting question. I think we are quite fixated on the, the modern and the recent past. Um, I don't know if people have trouble imagining a, a, a gay or queer past. That's really interesting. I mean, what I was thinking as you were speaking is that some of the one, some of the films that come to my mind that do reflect back on the past in interesting ways are actually very queer films. They're not just recovering a history; they're actually playing with it, manipulating it. And I'm thinking, say, of, um, uh, Derek Jarman and things like Edward II, mm -hmm. which is just yeah. an amazing film that I've not been able to I've not been able to fit it into the uh, uh, the uh, the module, and I regret every year that I haven't because it's just. I mean, it's an amazing film that would just, I, I don't know what students would make of it. <laughs> it would be really interesting. Um, or, oh, actually, as I'm thinking about it too, the, um, it was a Channel 4 co-production with Canada and the director escapes my, my, my memory right now, but an amazing film called um, uh, Zero Patience um, that was, is just the queerest film of the 90s. It's a, a musical about AIDS in which the so-called patient zero, uh, Gaetan Dugas, the Canadian air steward, uh, basically 
comes back from the dead is is resurrected in a, uh, a Toronto or Toronto or Montreal bathhouse um, and uh, is is um, helped in his journey, I suppose, through the now um, immortal um, uh, uh, Richard Burton, um, who is working for an Ontario museum to do a, uh, uh, a Hall of Contagion. So it's bonkers and fantastic, <laughs> and it's a musical. <laughs> a musical Amazing. about AIDS in the 90s, right? Uh, it's still in the period in which the, the crisis years were, were very real. Um, it's, and, and that's actually reflecting on a series of pasts, I suppose, um, both thinking about um, um, contagion, it's just reference to ty- references to, uh, um, to Typhoid Mary, to the Contagious Diseases Acts, to a longer history of how people have been uh, uh, subject to trauma and violence and criminalization because of their, um, their, their infection status, but also looking at the, um, its own relatively recent past in the 80s and 90s and the just the 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 destruction the hiv aids had 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 wreaked across the um the gay community at that time oh my god that sounds absolutely extraordinary i must see it um (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and that's that one regrettably pushes jarman out of my uh my my module and i I justify teaching it because it was Channel 4 was involved, so we, we, we get some Canadian content in, which is okay. important to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think Derek Jarman actually deserves a bit of a special mention. I'm glad you brought him up because, of course, he did make historical I mean, Sebastian Caravaggio, as well as Edward II, really did kind of establish a very, very unapologetically queer past. Um, Absolutely. But, of course, he was making what were effectively art films. And, I mean, what's, I think, fascinating now is that and I mean really it does come down quite substantially to one man Russell T Davis who you know started really kind of hit the kind of made his first sort of giant queer drama with queer as folk which of course was contemporary but in recent years you know I mean both It's a Sin which is you know a a historical drama although very recent period as you say and similarly a very English scandal um, which I thought was absolutely extraordinary you know, is actually kind of able to make these films, also TV productions, in the mainstream in a way that I think would have been unimaginable in Jarman's time, really. No, absolutely. And just the, the, the wide audience they achieve. I mean, that's so important to open up these conversations and to expose people to um, lives and experiences that may be different from their own. And for those of us that, didn't, that, that are queer but didn't live in those periods, to see, to see so so viscerally presented to us the the trauma and pain and, and destruction that many people experience i think is really really important i mean not everyone not everyone can take the ma queer history um and so but but access to these histories um even if they even if they are interpreted with some artistic license is is, is still absolutely crucial and i think in fact some of those those films like the Jarman films, like others that take a lot of creative license, I think can teach us even more about our own past by, by, by um, uh, 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 provoking us with questions that we might not have anticipated. If you're enjoying History Film Club, please join us at www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club. You'll get a free badge and various other exciting goodies depending on your level of membership. See you then. Let's make the point about, you know, very English scandal and some... Um... It's a sin is that they are hitting mainstream television audiences in sort of 
um, you know, mainstream moments and across channels as well. So very English scandal is BBC, whereas It's a Sin is Channel 4. And then also the other drama, of course, that's done very well recently for the BBC is um, Gentleman Jack, the story of Anne Lister, who's the early 19th century gentlewoman, whose documents were dynamite and very important for historians because they were the first written record of her her lesbian love affairs with women and sexual relationships as well. Um, so her, her, her diaries had been known to historians for a long time and I you know, teach a lot of women's and gender history and I always used to use them in my seminars and the students would be expecting a kind of, you know, early 19th century Regency lady as if from a Jane Austen novel and then they find her diaries are very explicit about her love affairs with women. But that's now a television series and I, I can't remember if it's filming its third series now. It's done incredibly well. So, you know, these, and there's, there's an interesting audience, mainstream audience for these dramas, which I think is new. I can't think of, of earlier ones that were running across so many different channels so successfully. So I think that's a really positive moment for us in television making. Absolutely. And the story of Anne Lister is fantastic for all the reasons that you describe. I think it's wonderful, too, that a, a historical character is seen and presented truthfully as being a sexual person and not, yeah. uh, well, I suppose not like Dirk Bogard being sort of chased. <laughs> um, I, I suppose it's Anne Lister is doing the chasing. <laughs> um, yes. and, and it's just a fantastic <laughs> character for it. Uh, I mean, and, and in addition to across channels, the the impact of these internationally is significant. And, and going back to uh, uh, to Davies and um, uh, queer as folk, that that had a huge impact on me as a as a Canadian in the in the '90s when that came out because it was screened um, it was screened on a channel that we had then, and I remember sort of recording it at night before I'd come out to my family, the sort of second viewing that was like three o'clock in the morning on the VHS so that I could then get up and shut the machine off and, and see it when my, my family wasn't home. Um, and, uh, and having access to those stories and those, um, uh, those, uh, those productions that weren't really appearing in Canada at that time. Um, and in fact, when I went to um, visit friends in St. Louis the next year, in, I guess that would have been 2000, it hadn't yet screened there. And I brought the tapes with me and we did a viewing party of Queer as Folk in St. Louis. So I'm going to take credit for introducing Queer as Folk to the United States. Well, it's excellent work there, Justin. <laughs> so, but I mean, it, it also, it's so compelling how the impact that, you know, both film and television can have on us. I remember talking to a friend of mine about the kind of history of, of queer film and he said how important to him this the film my beautiful laundrette was set in the 1980s and he watched it in the 1980s um and particularly for him he said it was the first sort of film he'd seen that explored homosexuality as a non-elite identity that it was a working class world that it was an ordinary london world and um and you know that had a profound impact on him and so you know we should never underestimate the significance that a particular film or a particular production can have on on a person's life, and I love that film too because the 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 queer story isn't the driving the entire driving narrative. It's mm. part of their lives, mm. but there's much more going on. I think it it shows that that film shows I think an important moment when a queer theme or a, in that case a gay theme I suppose didn't have to be the entire focus of the entire story. Yeah. And there was a lot more to it. I think that's a really important moment where it doesn't have to be the, um, the, the, the sole focus. And that's one that I teach as well. And it was particularly resonant teaching that in, at Goldsmiths in Southeast mm -hmm. London.
Mm. Yes, you can go and see the locations still. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It was, <laughs> there was references to the uh, to the um, uh, uh, the rioting, the um, uh, the National Front marches and whatnot. And one one had happened literally from the room we were we were um, uh, uh, the room we had the class in. We could see the street where. Um, where where some of that had happened, and to put that wow. into, into the, the the context of talking about that film, where we could actually from our seats see some of the locations, was astonishing. And we've talked quite a lot about about television and about earlier films. Have there been any recent films? Do you feel that have had a kind of significant impact? Uh, well, I think the favorite has has brought up a lot of these conversations as well, and is one where. Okay, there's a lot of artistic license taken with that film, and and we mentioned the rabbits before. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it does open up these conversations, and I think, uh, well, I mean, I mentioned Edward II before. There is a long history of royal favorites being an important part of of queer history. Too often, that that history is dominated by the stories of men. So it's absolutely fantastic to to bring in the stories of of women where men are not the center of uh, of this queer story, um, and to ask questions. I mean, I don't. Uh, I'm not. I'm not an early modernist, so I don't have all of the. Uh, um, uh, the answers on on uh, on Queen Anne's life, but uh, it's a really interesting. It, it, I, I went to the Queen's house in Greenwich, um, and part of the story there about the queer history of of the space and of Queen Anne's life is the missing uh, the missing paintings from the roof or from the ceiling of of the Queen's house. There's just empty spaces where now a design has been painted, and those apparently were uh, given to Sarah Churchill. Uh, and now are at, uh, was it Marlborough House? Um, so in that case, I think it's such a great metaphor for queer history that actually it's the absence, it's what's missing, it's that empty space that shows us where queer history resides and that opens up the possibility of discussion and conversation. So I was really glad to see much more conversation about, mm -hmm. uh, uh, about Queen Anne and the favourite, even if even if the purists might uh, might balk at, at, at some of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a difficult one for me to talk about because I, you know, was involved in in the production. But historians are certainly they either love it or they absolutely hate it with a passion. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's one it's one of those films where, um, yeah, I can walk into a room and I don't never quite know, you know, what the uh, what the res response is going to be. And I think that one of the criticisms that historians make is that. It's not an obvious story to tell necessarily if you're going to tell a queer history. That, um, but yes, it's that we could have a long conversation just about the favourite, couldn't we? Do we want to do that? I don't know if we do. <laughs> <laughs> Join us on another episode of History Film for a specific discussion. Well, but yeah, yes. absolutely. But so much the better if we're not telling the obvious stories. I mean, that, that when yeah. we tell the obvious stories yeah. is when we don't tell the stories of women. We don't tell the stories of trans people. We don't tell the stories of non-binary people. So let's throw out the obvious stories and do things that are a lot more interesting. Oh, 100% yeah. with you on that. Sounds great. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> so, Justin, we also ask everybody who applies to the History Film Club to nominate a particular favourite historical production for our club library. It can be a film or a TV show can be related to queer history or not, totally up to you. Uh, but I wondered what you would like to nominate. What a cruel question to make me choose. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I've got my like, I've got like a long list in front of me. I don't know what to do. And I'm torn between several. You know what? One that I think is little known today is a film from 1972 called I Want What I Want, um, based on a, a novel from a few years earlier. And this is one that um, uh, traces the story of 
a, um, a trans woman's uh, transition. And it really reflects on her experience, but also her experience with her family, but also reflects on gender more broadly in her interactions with her sister on, on discussing just the experience of being a woman and what, what that means and what's, what's artifice, what's real. Um, it's, it's very binary. It's 1972. Um, it's definitely a, 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 a transition story from one binary position to another. Um, but it's very much from the perspective of the um, uh, uh, the protagonist, the trans woman, um, and I don't think any of us expect to see that in in 1972. And I think it's a film that is unjustly little known. Mm-hmm. That sounds absolutely it sounds great. It. Do you reckon we can just about say it's historical? Because although it was made in 1972, it's set in 1966. I reckon maybe with the novel just being about. 66. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we can. Because, you know, it sounds so interesting that I think we're going to have to let it in. Sounds brilliant. I figured you'd have to cut me some slack there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as we said, it's the tricky thing of, you know, films haven't always really approached queer history head on um, for all sorts of reasons. So, yeah, I think think that's probably fair enough. And I think, you know, this is something that I'm hoping, as you say, that we'll see more of as kind of trans and non-binary experiences represented on film in a rather less horrendous way than they often have been in the past. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, Justin, we also ask our applicants to the History Film Club to nominate something that they would like to exclude from the club. So it can be just something that irritates you about um, film and television or a particular production. Is there something you'd like to put in our, our film club bin? Oh, goodness. Um what would I put in the film club bin? You know what? Actually, going off of that last conversation, I think still selling phobic stories. Let's just bin these these stories that still sensationalize um, uh, uh, queer lives as something to be um, consumed as aberrant and um, um, flawed and broken. There's still too many of them around, and I think uh, we've got a ways to go. Braveheart. Okay. Braveheart's depiction <laughs> of queer history. Mel Gibson one of those. always ends up every episode. Well, you know, that's his own fault, but I mean, oh. that film is super homophobic. Yeah. How many history. times have we been Braveheart? I don't know. Quite I mean, a times. lot. But it is, to be fair, it's not just Braveheart. No, you're absolutely right. It's a broader issue. But yeah, using, uh, you know, that I, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Phobia yeah. goes in the bin. Okay, phobia in the bin. Perfect. Yeah, or it's not just Braveheart. Maybe it's Mel, B- Mel Gibson. Can we bin Mel Gibson? <laughs> we it's, keep trying. We keep trying. <laughs> we keep <laughs> <back out> again. <laughs> Sorry, Mel Gibson, if you listen to History Film Club. <laughs> well, on that basis, Justin Bengry, it is my enormous pleasure to welcome you as a member of the History Film Club. Congratulations. We are delighted to have you. Um, We do love to offer our new members a drink from the club bar, which can make any drink, historical, modern, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, whatever floats your boat. So what can we get you? Oh, a Negroni. Easy decision. Oh, Oh, excellent. That's easy. easy. Okay. We'd all have those. (laughs) (laughs) Negronis for everyone. This should just be uh, the motto. (laughs) I don't like Negronis, sorry. Okay, not one for Hannah. And you seem so lovely. I know, but now it's all over. I'm going to get banned from the History Film Club, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and for joining us in this fantastic discussion of queer history on film. Um, Thank you, Justin Bengry, and thank you for listening. This has been the History Film Club. 
That was the History Film Club with Alex von Tonselman and Hannah Gregg. Their guest was Justin Bengry, it was produced by Matt Tapley, and the assistant producer was Abby Robinson. Uh, to join the Patreon, go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club.